where we are working through a series here called Empty Promises, and we're diving in and considering really these ideas of idols and looking at the things that our heart can take in this world that is normal, good, wholesome things, and yet turning them into things that we worship, things that are foremost, and things that are most important to us. In fact, they begin to conform and shape our lives as well. And so we've looked at a couple of these already. We've looked at some approval stuff. We've looked at some success problems. Last week, we dove in and we actually looked at power. And so this week, we're going to look at beauty and appearances. We're going to kind of shape and look at this and see how that fits into our conversation of of what it means to really follow after Christ. And so we're going to do that together. Before we do, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father, you are the God who is beautiful according to Scripture upon Scripture upon Scripture. He even claims your cross is beautiful, though it was a gory thing. And we, we realize what is going on there is, is that it is a powerful and um, compelling reality to us as you've borne our sins and as you've taken for us, Jesus, these things. We ask that as we enter into this conversation about beauty and appearance, that we would not be people who just add more knowledge to our minds, but that we become a people who are living faithfully in the truths that you are giving us from your scriptures Please be with us and bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, what's interesting is, I'm going to play in these boxes again here, um, we bought some microphones here at the church. Um, top of the line stuff, really good equipment. They were used for the vocal mics and they were set up here in the front. I believe they were wireless at the time and so they were, we were looking at them and we we're starting to use them. We're like, hey, these sound good. The quality's decent. This stuff's good. And over time, they, and they were actually marked on the outside, by the way, this it said Sure. And a Sure microphone's a good microphone. And so we opened this box up. We used them little bit of time rolls by and one of them breaks and we're like okay we got to send it in and get it fixed well they send it into the sure vendor and the guys who know how to fix this stuff and they open up the component parts and they're looking at they're like this isn't our this isn't our microphone this isn't a sure microphone i'm like really we found out and we're like oh we got duped by a chinese knockoff company that was selling sure microphones that wasn't sure microphones and the only way you could know was not on the outside they'd done such a good job the outside looked so much the same you had to open the components and you had to realize the screen on the inside didn't have sure marked across it and the components were different and only somebody who worked on the interior of a microphone could tell you the difference between these two mics and it was then that it kind of came home how much Chinese economy was going to be ruined I'm just kidding but they, how much that we could be easily duped by a forgery have you ever dealt with counterfeits? Have you ever ran into counterfeit money or dealt with a counterfeit situation or identity theft is huge as people try to pose and be somebody that they're not? This is a well-known phenomenon in our culture. And as we deal with this concept of appearance and beauty, we realize this idol is actually something that's growing. It's not something that's disappearing in our society. It's getting stronger. As you and I deal with Instagram, as you and I deal with Facebook and the social media explosion that is primarily bent on the, the visual and not just on the verbal, as you and I deal with television and magazines still, and we start looking at what it purports to us, there is a very real temptation to model and shape our lives with our culture around the image of what the world thinks is beautiful, powerful, and good, that its appearance is so important. And this is something we really have to wrestle with because we can get so easily caught into appearances as a church and we can get so easily caught into appearances as Christians because it's not really one of those things we sit around and go, oh, you've got the sin of appearance, you know, the sin of beauty. We don't think of it as a sin, let alone an idol. 
as something that we could be worshiping or be allow being in our lives. But beauty and appearance are an idol. In fact, they're a powerful idol. Very seductive. And the way that we, we see this and understand this is the beauty is seducing us because it gives you a false promise. This empty promise and is simply this, that beauty and appearance promise to give us what we want. Anything that you want. Whatever you desire. Timothy Keller, in his book on, uh, on idols, Counterfeit Gods, actually writes about this idea of deep idols and surface idols. And what he's getting at is that there are certain idols that are welded into the depth of your soul. Success, value, um, the, these ideas of approval, love, these things can be so deeply ingrained inside of us, they actually use other idols on top. They can use sex, they can use beauty, they can use money. These other idols are things we worship and use in order to gain the deeper idols of our souls. And when we understand that, you begin to see how beauty actually is the big, da- the big daddy of it all. Our beauty is sitting there, or the big mama, however you want to think of it. But she's sitting there going, hey, come and worship me, come take me up, I'll give you whatever you're looking for. I'll give you whatever it is that deep down in your heart you're longing for because we all know the beautiful people, they get the success, they get the jobs, they move forward. Oh, we know that they're the ones that get the love. They, they get married faster. They have the better relationships. Oh, they're the ones that get looked and gawked at. They have the value. Everybody wants beauty. And so beauty and appearance can actually shape and cause us to really begin to think it's going to give you everything that you want. Israel had a problem with this. And it's, it's kind of an interesting segment in the way that we look at it, but it's a, it's a time period in Israel's history where they wanted a king. They, they had a man named Samuel who was the judge over Israel. He was a prophet, and a godly guy, wise, led the, led, the na- led the area of his nation well. And all the elders gathered together and said, no, we want a king like the nations have a king. Give us a king. And Samuel, in his, re- in his just pain, he's like, oh, God, they rejected me. And God says, they didn't reject you, they rejected me. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to give them a king. And so it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that they, they start talking about this young man. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And it goes through who Kish's ancestors are. We don't have to go through all the names there. And he said, and he, had a, he was a man of wealth. Note that last part. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. You think they're trying to focus on something? From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Not only is this guy good looking, everybody can see that he's good looking because he's taller than everybody. Put him in a crowd, spread everybody out, and he's still taller than you. He's probably six foot four at the time, which would have been gigantic. And here he is, standing above everybody, and it focuses in on this. And so he goes off on the story after this to go find his dad's donkeys, and he runs into Samuel, who God says, this is the guy, anoint him as king. So all this stuff goes on. But then it kind of rotates into, into later. And um, all the people have been gathered on this plane to declare who the king is going to be. So he gathers all of, the, all of the different clans of all the different people, all the, all the tribes, and they do something called casting lots. Now, in the ancient world, the casting of a lot was either they would take a bunch of sticks and something and throw one out, and the one that popped out, they'd let you know, or you'd pull one out at random. And this casting of lots was a way of kind of finding out something of God's will. And so they do this. Today, he says, Samuel speaking, you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distress. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. So they've narrowed it down out of the 12 tribes to one of them, namely Benjamin. 
He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. So how many ever clans there were in there, subgroups in the families? He was selected this one group called the Metrites. They were taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, eventually they whittled it down to him, was taken by Lot. And so they go, Saul, paging Saul, paging Saul. And Saul isn't there. When they sought him, he could not be found. So they're like looking around. Can you imagine this bedlam, this crazy, where's Saul? Saul's not an, easy, not an easy figure to hide. He's taller than everybody else. He's the guy everybody's looking at going, ah, oh. I mean, no one laughs like Saul. And a Gaston song. So anyway, that's Saul right there. So they inquired again of the Lord, if he's, is there still a man to come? And he said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. They go over to the baggage and there's Saul sitting down there going like this ducking down as tight as he can, trying to keep away. And Samuel said that they grabbed him. When they stood among, he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who is the Lord has chosen? There's none like him in all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Dude, that guy's tall. He's got to be a leader. He's so handsome. He represents every good Israelite. You know, that's the idea going on here. And they've been attracted and drawn in by his appearance, his handsomeness, his beauty. But they've ignored something. They're looking for a king, not the contestant on the most handsome Israelite award. And what's a king supposed to do? Not hide in the baggage when he's supposed to stand boldly before the people. Something's going on in this, but what we're seeing is that beauty can begin to deceive us. It can begin to trick us. It can tell us we want this thing, and we believe, look, it's so pretty, we got to have it. And so what is in our hearts? What are you searching for? In our wrestling match with appearances and beauty, all of us can struggle with this at a level. Why? What is it promising you? Is it promising you power? Is it telling you you can have value? Oh, if you just do this, people will like you. Say you're going to get love. You've been single for so long. You just look better. And so you pour yourself into beauty. What is it? What is it promising us? Because beauty and appearance deceives us. And it can leave us empty or even worse. You see, beauty is a lot like my little special box here. Um, imagine it says, here's a special gift I made it myself. Can you imagine it's sitting in here? It's inside your stocking at Christmas. You pull it out, you're like, oh, pretty wrapping, nice box, looks like jewelry. And you open it up and you find, no, it's poop. <laughs> what is this? This is fake poop. It doesn't stink. I can play with it. It's okay. But the point is simply this. Can you imagine that's actually the gift you were given? The exterior looks so beautiful. Why would you wrap this? Why would you put this in here? Whoops. And, uh, and that's the point, Right? Beauty tells you it's one thing, but when you open it and look inside, you may have something radically unexpected. See, beauty can deceive us into thinking something's better than it is. In the book of Proverbs, in a similar illustration, they put it this way, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. As a beautiful woman who knows she's beautiful and just flaunts it and uses it and does everything, basically is a, is a woman who has given into the, all of the, the image of the world that she knows her, ima- her power has with beauty. It says, that's like a gold ring in a pig's snout. Now, this is harder for us after, after all the pig movies, Babe and all that stuff, and, and Wilbur, and we're like, we love little piggies, they're so cute. You know, that, that, the ancient world didn't think pigs were cute. 
they would think a talking pig was like a demon, okay? That's how it works in the ancient world. Because a pig was the most dirty, nasty, unclean thing you could ever encounter. They rooted around in their own filth. They ate their own filth. They were disgusting pigs. The Muslim world to this day still considers, the, and the Jewish world to this day, still considers pig and pork the worst possible thing that you could ever touch or eat. So you can imagine this. There's this beautiful gold ring worth a ton. In fact, you're a poor man. You're walking up to it, and there's this gold ring, and it's in the snout of a pig. It's untouchable. It's disgusting. It's vile. So is the, a beautiful woman without discretion. Now, hold on. People are like, why are you picking on women? No, the Bible understands one thing. Ladies, you are gifted with God's attribute of beauty. You are the personification of beauty as women in the room. I'm not going to pull, if I pull a guy up here and say, this is a beautiful guy, you know what I'm saying? He looks like a girl. That's what I'm saying. Okay, guys are not pretty. They're handsome. They're rugged. They're gritty. You know, they're, they're, they're men. Ladies, you are beautiful. And so when we talk about beauty, I'm not just talking to women, but you are the personification of it. I'm talking, it's the way of saying it of a pleasant appearance. So men with a pleasant appearance who are strong and manly and able, you know, without discretion, they're just as nasty. Because it's not about what the outside shows, it's about what's on the inside. It's what really is beautiful. Look at the religious Pharisees, for goodness sakes. Religious Pharisees showed off all of their garb. They, were, they had long phylacteries. They had things on their you know, boxes all over them with prayers. And they would shout their prayers on the streets. And they would do trumpets when they're throwing stuff and coins into the, into the kettles. I mean, they showed off their religiosity to the point where everybody's like, Oh, it's the Pharisees. I'm so excited. You know, they loved it. They thought these were the religious stalwarts of their time. And Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, full of dead men's bones, which were unclean and disgusting to the Jewish mind. It can deceive us that something is better than it is. You know, it can get as simple as us coming in to worship here at the church. And we raise our hands and we sing out. And our exterior doesn't match the fact that we're sleeping with our girlfriend or our boyfriend the night before and getting drunk like crazy or whatever. That rebellion is open in our hearts, but our arms are extended in worship of God. Our hearts can be far from God, but though our exterior looks so close. And that's the danger. The danger of worshiping the idol of appearance and beauty. Things are not what they seem. Things could be really wrong. And so beauty alone actually is worthless. It kind of leaves us empty. And that's what, that's what this says. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain or worthless is another way of translating that term. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A person who fears the Lord, that's somebody who's valuable. That's somebody who has actually figured it out. And that's true for Saul too. In fact, why don't we go forward? Look at 1 Samuel 15. And we can pick this back up. If you have your Bibles open, flip over to 1 Samuel 15. Otherwise, you can grab a Bible and join us in 2.37, and you'll be right there with us. Now, Saul has been instructed by God to go and wipe out the Amalekites. This is a full-blown, these guys, sin. I, to describe it, you would probably take way too long and is way too disgusting. But these guys were a mess, and God was done with them. It had risen up to him. He was looking at it going, no, done. And as this rose up to him, he called Saul and he said, look, this is over. You're going to go punish them. This, this whole scene. But he doesn't do it. In fact, what Saul does is he doesn't kill off 
the king, and he keeps all the best cattle for himself. And so verse 10 begins, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his, turned his, he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the Saul, and, and Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. Do we have a problem here? Here he is, setting up a monument to himself. Something's captured his heart. He's all this power, he wants to appear even greater. I have this great, I've just done this great thing, let's set up a monument. And God's going, you didn't do what I asked you to do. In fact, Samuel shows up and rebukes him in the following passages. And this is how Saul responds in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, and I obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon me, my sin, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. In other words, I'm so, this looks so repentant until you start realizing what Saul's doing. He's saying, I messed up. I'm so sorry I didn't obey you. I didn't obey the Lord. Please pardon my sins and let's go worship before the people so they can see we're all good. So they can see everything's okay now. Saul's literally bending on his appearance. He's asking Samuel to capitulate. Let's make everybody know that this is okay. We don't want people to lose, lose faith in their king. Let, let's make sure that this is all okay. Now, therefore, please pardon, it goes on, and, and Samuel says to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and, this, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Note the promise that beauty and appearance gave to Saul. What was it? You're going to be king. You're going to be powerful. And now, it's gone. No, it, it, is, it, is, it is lied to you. You've lost it. Saul grabs his robe and tears it and Samuel turns around and says, hey, this is what's happened to you. It's been torn out of your hand. And then this is Saul's response in verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. All showmanship. All about showing off his appearance. All about making himself look good. So Samuel does go back with him, but not to bless him. He goes back and finishes the job, showing his shame to all of Israel that Saul had not obeyed, that Saul was no longer in the right standing with the Lord. And suddenly, in all of this mess, we begin to see this rejection of Saul. The beauty alone only is worthless when you try to stand on it alone. The appearance will always let you down. It'll always let you down. If you're after beauty, eventually beauty fades. Age will catch up to us. And I'm not saying that old people are ugly. What my point is, is that in our culture, we worship youthful beauty. People who get older want plastic surgery to look younger. They don't go get wrinkles installed. I'm just saying, that's how it works. People who are at a certain place try to get their skin smooth. They try to look a certain youthfulness. They have an image upon which they are trying to live. And it's the image of an 18 to 25-year-old. And then we judge each other by those images. 
But beauty will eventually let you down, and appearances will eventually let us down too. See, Jesus put it this way. Build whatever appearance you want around you. Build yourself to look like a religious, amazing person. Build yourself up to be the best boss in the world. Build yourself up to be a powerful individual, an honest person. Whatever it is, have no fear of them, he says of the Pharisees, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. I've had enough conversations with addicts over the years to know that there's one thing in common with every addict. They believe they can just keep the facade up and the consequences don't have to hit them. Sure, I did that, but it's not that big of a deal and nobody has to know. And so secretiveness and appearance becomes what they're dedicated to in their life. But it always comes through. And it always comes through extremely loud the longer they've hit it. The longer you hide your things, the longer you hide behind appearance, the louder the declaration will be when it comes out. And that's the fear so many of us have. And so that's why we keep up with the beauty. That's why we keep up with the appearance because we know if this gets out, it's going to be bad. Got to keep it up. Got to keep it up. And now you're doing the dance that beauty and appearance does when you worship that idol. You see... You start to be a sham, you start to be a fake, you start to think, are these people really my friends? If they really knew who I was, would they stick around? Would I be thrown out of my position at the church if they knew what I was doing? There's tons of this kind of thinking going on in ministries and in Christians' lives all over the place. But here's the warning, it will be revealed. The truth will come out. If not on this earth, it will definitely be shouted in the judgment. And this is why beauty can consume us. Appearance can consume us. It starts off where you, it's how promise uses these things. But what happens is you and I have a problem. We are made in the image of God. Isn't that an interesting word? Image. It's a visual word. It's a word representing a picture. You and I are the picture of God. You and I are made in his picture. We're made to live like he lived. We're in his image. And what that means is we're reflective. We're reflections. We are not originals. Whatever you image, whatever you're aiming at, whatever you're putting in front of your heart is what you will become like. We'll talk about that more next week. What you worship is what you become. But what we're really looking at here is that this becomes a consummation. It starts to shape us and change us. And first it starts to consume your time. It's going to consume the time that it takes to exercise every day to get, that, to get into that shape. It takes the time that you're going to put in, in bathing and, and putting the makeup on, making the hair right, and buying the right clothes, and reading the magazines, and looking up all the Instagram things, and putting the designs right in your house, and getting the perfect photo of that, and, and editing these things, and make sure I got the perfect comment. You're going to spend more time doing that than anything else. It starts to consume your time. It'll start to consume your money. The next step is it begins to consume even more. It starts to consume your image. You start to think things in your head. I am this, or I was once this. Now, and as you begin to lose it, the, con- the change in your vocabulary will be, I'm not that anymore. I need to get back to that. I felt so valuable when I am beautiful, or I was beautiful. I don't feel that way. And it just starts to consume your thinking. And as that consummation becomes, it can start becoming even more corrosive to where it suddenly becomes who you are. It consumes your life. And while I don't think all eating disorders have anything to do with that, there is usually attached to all the chemical and other things that are going on with an eating disorder, an idol of beauty. A desire to be a certain thing. There is attached in the sexual world 
have idolatry, a sexual idolatry, a beauty, an achievement, some kind of vision or image that we want to be, some kind of desire for value or power. There's attached inside all of these things where you get rolling into plastic surgery. We've seen people who try to become looking like Barbie dolls. This is, this is a life consumed by image. And we have to ask ourselves, where are we at? What's it starting to consume as we have this in our life? Are we spending more time in our exercise, makeup, um, clothing, Instagram, photographs, all that stuff than we are in the practice of our faith? I don't mean just reading your Bible and praying. I mean the practice of our faith in which we are engaging and working with people where we're living the faith out and worshiping God. Or have we allowed the majority of our life to be consumed in the worship of beauty and appearance? It can consume us. So what do we do with this? How do we get past this? Because it is a frightening thing when you start to lay it open. You start going, wow, am, am I just decorating the box and I'm not worrying about what's inside? How, am, I, am I just a phony, a fake mic, a poser, as it once was called? How do we overcome this? We overcome the idol of beauty and appearance by seeing ourselves as God sees us. We need to see how God sees us. Yes, he sees you as his image, but, but more importantly, we want to see something else. Turn, just look back at 1 Samuel. We're going to look at verse, or chapter 16 really quickly. Not the whole thing, but just a portion here. It starts off and Samuel is woken up by God and says, now go to, go to this town in Bethlehem and you're going to meet Jesse who lives there and you're going to anoint one of his sons king. And he's like, I can't do that. Saul's going to kill me. He's like, don't worry about it. Just say you're going to, you're going to uh, make a sacrifice. And so with intention to make a sacrifice, he goes there and he comes and he says, I'm here peaceably. And then we pick up in verse six or we'll actually pick up in verse five. The elders have come and asked him, are you here? And he says, do you come peaceably? He says, I come peaceably. I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with, come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So he picked them out and said, you guys, come with me. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Saw his long flowing hair. His rippling muscles and his beautiful tanned skin as he stood out there, his regal nose and perfect eyebrows. Not like mine. And he's standing there. He's going, it's the anointed of God. Notice how much they're focused there. He looked on Eliab. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And he calls Jesse and called Abinadab and the next guy and the next guy and nope, nope. Finally he gets down he's like, hey, is there anybody left? And he says, the youngest remains outside and behold, he's, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, hey, we're not going to sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, what's interesting is we know David becomes this amazingly great king. And he's called something very specifically. He's called a what? A man after God's own heart. He said, I don't look at his outer appearance. Even though it keeps describing him, it says, no, I see his heart. I see his inward part of who he is. I see who he is. And think about that. This is David we're talking about. 
This awesome shepherd king who loves God who kills some guys or kills some guy to, to get his wife. The man after God's own heart? But it tells us something. God looks at the heart. It starts there. It starts with this beauty within and not a beauty of a worship of beauty on the outside. It starts with the realization that something is going on inside of us that needs to be there. First Peter puts it this way, speaking again in the context of women. He says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, in God's sight very precious. And those terminology is, now he's not saying don't, don't, not, don't, don't, don't get engaged with nice hair. And so he's not saying that or else you'd have to not wear clothing and that would not be good. So we, we, we know he's not saying that. He's saying don't make that your focus. Make your focus the imperishable beauty of your heart. Make your focus what's going on in your soul. Make your focus the gentle and quiet spirit. In another place, Jesus put it this way. He said, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not saying, be even more ostentatious than your righteousness than the Pharisees. He's saying, hey, if your righteousness doesn't seek in a little deeper than your clothing and skin deep, than your appearance, then you're not inheriting the kingdom. It needs to come from within. Guys, the only way righteousness comes from within is if Jesus Christ dwells in your soul. If he dwells in your heart. As he produces the righteousness, the spirit of God that dwells in us produces the righteousness. And when we worship Jesus and we know Jesus, he begins to conform and transform us. He begins to work in us and bring out a righteousness that we didn't have. Now, so many people are like, well, how do I do that? How do I have a, a spiritual exercise? Look, we've talked about this a thousand times. I mean, you go to the church long enough, you're going to find out, I'm going to tell you several things. Number one, read the Bible, study it, memorize it, you know, get into the word of God. You have that information. You're going to hear me say, you need to pray and, and be a person who prays. And we need to be in small groups and serve other people. We need to be evangelizing. Guys, we all know this. If you're not a, if you're not a non-Christian or a brand new Christian, if you've been here for any time, we know this. It is here in our heads. Do you want to know how to have your heart change and transform and how your soul change? Do it. Obey it. Live it. Be purposeful and live in the word. Be purposeful and serve. Be purposeful and give away the gospel. Be purposeful. Live it. And trust God is working in your heart. But we have to become people who obey all that he has commanded us as we're instructed to. Now, it doesn't mean we're legalists. It means that we love God with such a passion because he saved us from hell that why wouldn't we want to live for him and represent him on this earth? But it requires the action. You don't have to make the just from the head to the heart. You, we all need to get it from the heart and the head into our lives, into our hands and our feet and let it dwell in all those places at the same time. That's what it means to really live out this. Now, Lastly, then, what's the antidote? We must trust God knows who we really are and still loves us. David is a man after God's own heart. Yet he commits adultery, murder. He gives up on his son who commits incest, lets his other son who murders his other son go free, numbers the people out of his pride, seeing God judge and destroy tons of people, I mean, David is not the shining figure or paragon that we should be modeling our lives after. But we go, David, 
that God, man, after God's own heart, really? Do we think that God didn't know what David would do when he anointed the, the young man? Of course he did. Do you think God didn't know the sins that you'd commit when you received Jesus Christ on the cross and were forgiven of your sins? Of course he did. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every action and everything and every sin and every good deed you will ever do for all of eternity, all of your life. And he has chosen to love you. He loves you. He gave you his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to bear your sins because he loves you. And he, you can't hide from him. He sees you perfectly. He knows every spot, every blemish, every nasty thing. You wouldn't tell your mom or your spouse or your kids the things that we've built appearance and beauty all around to say, it's not here. There's nothing to look at. Keep moving. And God goes, that's right there. No, it's not. Yes, right there, right there, and there, and there. And we go, you're going to kill me. This church is going to fall on my... No, he's sitting there going, I love you so much. I've given you my son to bear that mess so you could be forgiven. No one in this church is perfect. No leader, no ministry leader, no volunteer, no person in the pews, not in a church in a single nation, is there not a messed up person sitting or preaching or leading in all of the world? There's been just Jesus Christ. Perfect and righteous. Just Jesus. And he loves us. You know how much I know that? Watch this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Oh, no, really? John, you gave this so we wouldn't sin? But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, which means he is the one who's gathered his sins upon us and taken them and removed them from us. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he says to us this. Here, here's how we think as humans. Isn't that how we think as Christians? You're out there, you're doing your thing, do, 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 and then you... Then your pride gets the hold of you. You're yelling and screaming at your kids, or your, or your pride gets a hold of you, and you're you're acting all arrogant and cocky, or you you act all humble and shy, like oh thanks, I'm I'm a miserable, whatever our sin is, however it comes out, we get all crazy. What's the first thing we think when we sin and we're convicted? We think, oh my gosh, God's gonna beat me. Isn't that true? God's gonna bring out his big spanking paddle, and I'm gonna get it. I'm going to get put in time out. I'm going to lose a blessing. Something, my life's going to go bad. I'm going to lose business. I'm going to, you name it. How, anybody there with me? Are we the only ones who think in this way? No, of course we think this way. We're humans. And what happens is, we think Jesus is going to be there going, Dad, my brother did this. He's out there tattling on us. No, that's Satan's job. What Jesus is doing is he's your advocate. Just after you sin, he goes, hold on, I got this. Dad, dad, listen, I died for him on the cross. Dad, dad, I love this guy. He's my brother. Dad, I know it looks bad, but we did this. We got this. He trusts me. He trusts in us. He advocates for you. He fights on your side. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's how much God loves you. That's how much Jesus is on your side when you've received him as your Savior and your Lord. So how should we live then? 
Here's the antidote. Live an authentic life. Live an authentic life. I know that's a catch term nowadays, but let's put it in the old school. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Do you know what all this image does? It keeps us from letting the poo out of the box. And so we keep hiding it all the time. And what he says is, no, just, just deal with it. Get it out. Let's clean it up. And that happens through confession. Then we can get rid of it. We don't have to be counterfeits anymore. It's all done. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Many of us aren't experiencing healing in the depth of our habitual sins and our struggles because we're afraid to tell on ourselves. We're afraid to confess. So we're great. We're perfect. I got this made. I'm good. I don't struggle with value problems. Nope, I don't struggle with power issues. Nope, I don't struggle with success problems. We don't have any idols here. Only Jesus. It's just not true. And we're called to confess. We're called to let it out. In fact, 1 John puts it this way. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in this, we have this opportunity then to be a kind of people who are growing in holiness as we are a broken, messed up group of people together. Together. Where we take away all of the image, all of the appearance, and just say, this is who I really am. This is the mess I really am. And as appearance goes away, I'm not saying we don't you know, bathe and don't, get our hair done. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we don't worship anymore. Those things. We, we literally are ready to just say, God, here I am. This is who I am today. And, and then what do we do? We, you know, we turn to each other and we just start saying, you're an evil sinner. How dare you be in this church? No, 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 no. Look, Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, caught does not mean I caught you. No, caught means tangled up, stuck, bound up. If anyone is bound up in any transgression, meaning that apparently it's been sold, everybody knows now, so they've confessed, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's with kindness and carefulness, like, like caring for somebody. It does not mean, and then it goes on, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, we love that term, bear one another's burdens. Somebody dies in the family, we're like, we're going to bear each other's burdens. We grab the potluck and we're off, set it in and we pray for each other. We see somebody else is just having a bad day and they're depressed. We're all, bear one another's burdens, pray with me, and talk counseling. Somebody comes out and says, I am struggling with pornography. And we go, whoa, won't touch that with 10-foot pole. You may stay there. We're going to draw a circle around you. That's where you get to sit at church. You know, that's how we act. That's not what this says. The burden that we bear is the sin of the brother or sister. Not the horrible day. The sin that someone is caught in. So we could restore them. You see why Satan wants us to live in a beauty appearance world? So we will never confess our sins, so that we will never get to the place where we're confessing and healed, where we're not forgiven, and to where suddenly we can't bear each other up and be a community where God reigns because his mercy has restored our souls. That's authenticity. That's the answer to the image. And that's what I hope we're called to, because our God loves us no matter how messed up we are.